BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It is Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. Uh, I always begin each one of these bonus interviews with a little tidbit from the news. I'll tell you what's going on in the world because, you know, it's a podcast. You could be listening a year from now. Uh, but this is really not a news story. It's from the obituary page. And in some ways, it relates, not directly, kind of indirectly, uh, to my distinguished guest who's waiting on deck to come aboard and the conversation we're about to have. Uh, from yesterday's New York Times, the obituary by Penelope Green. Shout out, Penelope Green. Great job, in my humble opinion. Here's the headline. Dr. Roland Patillo, who honored provider of immortal cells, dies at 89. Uh, and Penelope Green tells the story of Roland A. Patillo, a gynecologist, uh, oncologist who had been treating and researching female cancers for decades and long been haunted by the curious case of Henrietta Lacks, a young, impoverished black woman who died of cervical cancer in 1951, yet whose cells lived on and made medical history. And if you know that name, uh, Henrietta Lacks, you know uh, that she was the subject of a book a uh, bestseller by Rebecca Skloot, which was eventually made into a movie uh, where I believe it was Oprah Winfrey uh, played uh, Henrietta Lacks' daughter. And um, Roland Patillo, as the story tells, was sort of the, fellow, the, uh, the researcher, this, the doctor, the scientist, uh, who led, in many ways, Rebecca Skloot uh, to, um, you know, to, to learn the story of Henrietta Lacks and turn it into that bestseller. And it tells in this uh, obituary about how Patia was a little, what was the word? Like, he was a little doubtful, perhaps, when he first met Rebecca Skloots. Could she tell the story the right way? And so he kind of had a mini interview with her, and he ultimately determined uh, that uh, she was the person to uh, tell the story, and then he helped her out and introduced her to family members, and the rest, of course, is history. Uh, and then he acted as sort of as a guide to Rebecca Skloots throughout her research. She would turn to him many, many times, according to this article, uh, for advice, uh, to relate what she had discovered, to listen to what he had to say in response to what she had discovered. Uh, and at one point, there's an exchange uh, where uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Patillo had guided Miss Skloots in her work uh, to make sure she got the story right. She remembered visiting Clover, the tiny Virginia town that was the site of the plantation where Mrs. Lack's ancestors had been enslaved. She phoned Dr. Castillo uh, afterwards, shocked by the poverty she had seen. Dr. Petir told her she recalled, quote, welcome to the world. Dr. Petillo, a black man and a great scientist, uh, passed away the other day at age 89. Rest in peace. Uh, and uh, that tale, that story of how the older man sort of led the younger journalist uh, into the knowledge that she might not have obtained without him uh, kind of has a parable connection 
to the conversation I'm about to have with my distinguished guest on many levels. And I thought of him when I read this article on yesterday's New York Times. I said, oh, I am going to use that as my introduction, not only because Dr. Patillo deserves recognition. Sounds like a great man. I wish I had met him. Uh, but because it's uh, germane to the conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself as we do on this show, and away we will go. Distinguished guest. I don't know about distinguished, but my name is Jesse Washington, and I'm a journalist. Okay. Little more than just a journalist. <laughs> I love it when my, you know, th- this is Jesse Washington's first uh, visit to the show, and some some of my guests always joke, when I do that, they're not ready for it, uh, it's like a, a prisoner of war captured in World War II. I will just give you my name and my serial number and nothing more. Uh, so do you want me to elaborate or do you all want right, to elaborate? All right. I got you. I got you. Um, you're very kind and I appreciate it. So I'm a, I'm a writer. Uh, I write books. I've written a novel. I've written two autobiographies. Um, I'm a budding filmmaker i started making documentaries a few years ago and i'm a hooper if you meet me on the court in all likelihood you're about to get waxed how's that <laughs> ladies and gentlemen there's truth to that that last statement uh and there's <laughs> videotape some guy challenged him uh you could find it on youtube just uh go uh j- just put in jesse washington you'll find it this guy can play Jesse Washington can seriously play. You know, and I like to trash talk my guests say, oh, man, I would have beat you back in the day. I'm retired, Jesse Washington. But no, I would not have defeated uh, Jesse Washington. Now, Kevin Blackstone, my dear friend who introduced me to Jesse Washington. Well, that's a whole other story. Okay, No, it's not. He's too short. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a whole other story. I can hold my own against Kevin Blackstone. That's what I was okay. saying. Not that he could be. Okay. So you see how I'm wired now. I immediately took it as a challenge. Yes, you did. Um, so, so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, grow up uh, <laughs> and, and not take everything like that. But uh, it's hard, man. I mean, that's, that's how we're built. All right. Uh, so this particular book, uh, don't get confused. We're not going to talk about his latest book, which, uh, about Rich Paul, where he co-wrote with Rich Paul, uh, and uh, the the great agent, entrepreneur, capitalist, uh, um, Adele lover, on and on and on and on. No, we're not going to talk about that. We're talking about a book that listeners of my show know was hugely influential. First, I want to give a shout out to listener Frank, who was the one who turned me on to the book. I came as a shadow, an autobiography, John Thompson, and uh, I'm my camera's not working. Otherwise, you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm showing Jesse Washington the copy of the book I got uh, with all the little notes I took on it. When Frank gave me the book, turned me on to the book, I read it, and then I became obsessed with it. John Thompson is, um, of course, well, he, he passed in t- the year 2020, uh, but he was for years the coach, the basketball coach at Georgetown, a tall, imposing black man. I mean, literally, that was John Thompson in the mind of Sports America, Jesse Washington, a tall, imposing black man, kind of scared the hell out of white people on one level. Let's just call it for what it is, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Yep. And, uh, you know, he was the Georgetown coach for years from in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Uh, And this book just so filled. It's like. Patio, Roland Patio educating uh, Rebecca Sklut. It's just so filled with like really on point observations about race in our country from a man who's not afraid to tell it like it is. And we'll get into this. He who uh, was really brilliantly, in my humble opinion, um, tied all of his observations were tied together by the writer who gets no credit in these books generally. Oh, let's just be honest, Jesse Washington. Barely, you, it, it's John Thompson in huge letters on the cover with Jesse Washington. Man, any writer in the world knows that Jesse Washington did 99% of that work. Sorry, I had you, to say uh, that. I got a story about the size of my name on the cover. Go ahead, tell the story, then we'll take the deep dive. Go. There's a contract between the the author and the co-writer. And, and in that contract, it was specified that my name had to be no less than half the size of John Thompson's name. You know, I, I'm like, whatever, when I sign it, that's not a deal point for me. It's just something standard in there that, that the agent negotiated. And so then the book, the, the cover mock-up comes out, my name is Tiny. And I think of it, but I'm like, all right, whatever, man. I'm, I'm you know, like, I'm not going to tell 
John Thompson, my name needs to be bigger. But it came up in the discussions and they, and they did a couple of revisions with my name larger. And we're doing this over email with coaching his children. And his, his kids keep coming back and saying, yeah, he prefers the first version, the one with the tiny Jesse Washington. Now, I had negotiated this contract with the one and only David Falk, who is uh, agent extraordinaire, both in real life and, let's be honest, in his own mind. So I wanted to let everybody know that, that I had something in my pocket, but I'm, you know, whatever. So these emails are going back and forth. And I said, and this is almost verbatim, there is contract language about the size of my name, but whatever coach wants is fine with me. (laughs) So basically I was like, yeah, Falk, I got you. But if you're lucky that coach is coach, because I'm going to defer to him. And, uh, and as soon as I sent the email, when 30 seconds Falk called me and tried to convince me to do what I had already decided to do, which is to keep my name small. I'm ecstatic that my name is next to John Thompson's on the cover. That's all the credit I need. I don't care if you needed a microscope or, or a magnifying glass to see it. I'm good. My name is next to Coach John Thompson for all time. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Uh, and it doesn't say David Falk anywhere on this book. David Falk had nothing to do with anything <laughs> with this book except for unnecessarily giving Jesse Washington a hard time. All right. And if you want to see a characterization of just of uh, David Falk, the agent, super agent, Michael Jeffrey Jordan's agent, Alan Iverson's agent, go watch Air. Uh, oh, he hates that movie. He hates that movie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he hates that movie. We went to Falk's house to interview him for the documentary that we're making. Shout out to the director, Kirk Frazier. And uh, and we were warned not to bring up the movie. Let's just say that that Brother Falk brought it up himself and his dissatisfaction with it. Apparently, did him wrong. He is thanked in the back of the book, and he did have a very meaningful relationship with Coach Thompson, and, and he's in the acknowledgments. But but yeah, man, David Falk is one of a one in a million, and uh, um, I got to know him pretty well writing this book. All right, uh, so let's talk about um, the writer's role, uh, starting with. Uh, how you got the gig in the first place. Uh, so you were right. Uh, well, you still work for um, the undefeated, although it's not called the undefeated anymore. Uh, and I apologize for not remembering its real name. Uh, and you're smiling. Uh, and um, so uh, you're, you're well known in the sports writing community. Uh, how did, that's probably not good enough to get you this gig in and of itself. Uh, so how, talk a little bit about the process by which uh, John Thompson decided that you, uh, of all the writers in America were going to be the the gentleman who wrote his autobiography. Hmm. Well, uh, at the time that we started this, I was, I still don't think I'm well known in the sports writing community. I, I did not spend most of my career writing sports, but the people who know, and if you know good writing, I like to think that you know who I am. So anyhow, they were looking for a writer. They needed somebody. And uh, the, the literary agent, who was putting this whole project together, the great David Black was hired by uh, the Thompson family and David Falk to, to do all these things like find a writer. And he asked the president of ESPN, which is, you know, the big company that we work for and that the undefeated was, was a, a platform on. He asked John Skipper, do you have anybody that you want to recommend who could write John Thompson's autobiography? And my name was given. I'm sure it was not the only name. I'm sure that there were a number of other writers probably uh, uh, above me on the list. But when I got the call and I got a chance to interview uh, for the job, I put my mind to it that this was something that I really wanted to do. So I came to the interview prepared. And the interview was myself, Coach Thompson, his son, John Thompson III, and his daughter, Tiffany. Little did I know Tiffany was the one who I really had to win over in that meeting. <laughs> she is, the, in many ways the in the driver's seat with a lot of things in in her family's life so i went for an interview it was the first time i'd I'd ever met coach thompson he had never heard of me had no idea who he was who i was and i wouldn't call it a grilling that i got but it was definitely a stiff questioning by coach thompson and his his uh his two children two of his three children wani wasn't there and um you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of aggressive questions that were designed to sort of see what kind of person I was, such as um, most of us know who care about such things that if you can't mix and match your brands on your outfit. So if I got an Adidas shirt on, 
then I can't wear Nike shoes. It's just, you just can't do that. I can't wear Puma socks with Adidas shoes. You got to be consistent. You know what I'm saying? This is like the thing that we have. And so uh, I said to myself, well, what am I going to wear to this interview? Um, and I said, well, I'm not going to wear a suit or anything. That would be a little preposterous and ostentatious. But I'm, I know that Coach Thompson cares about – He, Coach Thompson was known for having his players dress respectfully when they traveled. So I wore a polo shirt, and, it, and the only polo shirt that I had had an Adidas logo on it, had some khaki pants on, and I put some Adidas shoes on. So halfway through the interview, JT3 says to me, why you wear Adidas in here, man? You know we're a Nike family. <laughs> this is an example of the kind of things they're doing to try to, to, you know, to shake me up a little bit, see how I respond. I said, my response to him was, I am size 13. I welcome all Nike apparel. Uh, Coach Thompson said to me, and this is a direct quote, why did you dress that way to come here today? And it was a very intelligent question. He didn't characterize my dress. He just said, why did you dress that way? And I told him, this is what I'm comfortable in. And this is what I wear to work most of the time. So I wanted to see you like I wanted you to see me like I really was. So after that, I got the job. Wow. That's the story. Did you start wearing Nike after that? I did, but not every time, you know, because I don't. I also didn't want to make it seem like I was kissing his behind, to be honest with you. Like, I didn't think that that would be healthy for the relationship because in that first interview, I did ask, he said, do you have any questions? And one of my questions was, um, I think that I'm going to have to ask a lot of difficult questions that sometimes challenge you in this process. If you choose me to write your book, is that, would that be okay with you? And he said, yes, I think I would need that. So I didn't want to wear Nike every time because I got other shoes and I like other shoes. So I'm going to wear them. I'm not going to change who I am just to uh, make Coach Thompson, you know, think a certain way about me. Um, I did, however, um, I did put thought into how I presented myself because I knew what his expectations were. And, uh, and I wanted to make sure that he knew I cared about his values. Yeah. And I just like to point out that uh, we'll get into this in a little while. Uh, Coach John Thompson was uh, well compensated by Nike for wearing and promoting their uh, apparel. I do not believe Jesse Washington ever got a nickel from Nike. So why the hell should he should be a billboard for Nike, which is probably how I would have answered. And then I wouldn't have gotten a gig. <laughs> <laughs> not a nickel. I have never, I've given many nickels to yeah. Nike. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh and i never did get no i did actually um they released some commemorative georgetown type of sneakers and um coach thompson's family has been very kind and generous to include me and they'll call me up and ask me for my address and and so i do get i have gotten some free nike stuff because because of coach thompson okay which is a little not as much as him though yeah, and it's a little different than getting paid by nike to wear their stuff all right uh let's move on from that topic <clears throat> Yes. Uh, and uh, get down to the book itself. Uh, so talk about the process of being the writer of an autobi somebody else's autobiography. Uh, and as I told you on the phone uh, the other day, I believe that voice was consistent throughout. That was John Thompson's voice. Those were John Thompson's words. I could almost see him saying it in my mind, but, and somebody give a shout out to all writers out there, underpaid, not, not getting commercial endorsement deals from Nike because Nike doesn't give commercial endorsement deals to writers or humble podcasters. I might add, uh, <laughs> their attitude is who's going to buy a sneaker. Cause you wear it, Ben or Jesse. All right. Uh, so, but it was clearly, and I said this at the time, channeled by the writer. And I had never, I did not know Jesse Washington. Shout out Kevin Blackstone. He's the one who introduced us. I did not know Jesse Washington, but I could tell, Jesse, that you were in, you were the driver of that boat. It may have been uh, John Thompson's words, but you were channeling it. You were putting it into focus. You were giving it coherency. Uh, you were like most celebrities, they may have great thoughts that may be can shoot from the hip, et cetera, and so forth. They may profound wisdom, but they couldn't put it together for their life of them. 
Do you get what I'm saying? They couldn't make a coherent chapter, let alone a book which had like a theme, has has a beginning, a middle, an end, an arc. A consi- but you have punchlines. I know he doesn't speak in punchlines. There are punchlines, like he sets something up, and then there's a punchline. I'm like, there's no way John Thompson, he's not Shecky Green. He didn't come up with that punchline. That Anyway, I'm just speaking for my beloved writers out there. Talk about the process of writing an autobiography of somebody else. Man, well, thank you for referencing the writers. And you do give us credit for some of the things that we're supposed to do. So I can't speak for everybody else, but thank you for recognizing his voice. That was my number one goal. Because after I, you know, after I sat with him, maybe after the first time, all I had experienced of him before that was on television and in interviews. Um, and when I listened to him, I was like, I, this has to sound like him. And I have a big pet peeve with a lot of books. I'm a big reader and I've read a lot of autobiographies. And sometimes you're like, there's no way that this is how LeBron James talks or Jim Brown. Talk. And I'm not picking these out as, as poorly done, but it's like, you know, this does not sound like the person I know. So I had to get that right. Um, and so the process was the other thing you said, I was driving the boat. He wanted me to drive the bus is the example that I'll use. So um, when, when John Thompson and his team got on a bus, there was a bus driver, right? He was in charge of getting you safely. He was in charge of stopping at the lights and making turns and getting gas and cho- maybe even choosing the route. But the person in charge of the bus was John Thompson and he never let you forget that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the ultimate destination was his, but he asked and relied on me to come up with things to talk about every time. I didn't show up and he'd be like, well, I want to say this and I want to make sure I say that. He would ask me, so what do you have for me today? So I had to come up with prompts. I had to come up with topics. Well, let's talk about this period. Let's talk. And then it, it was more not what he did because that's part of the historical record. We sat in our interview room in the George, I'm sorry. We sat in our interview room in the John R. Thompson Jr. Athletic Center at Georgetown University after walking past the bigger than life-size statue of John Thompson in the hallway. That was every time. Now, now to be bigger than John Thompson is very big. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the man is already six foot 10. The statue felt like it was eight foot 19. And we would go right past it and go and get to work. And so I had to show up every day with things to talk about, you know, and with, and it was, we quickly got, we sat surrounded by 30 or 35 scrapbooks that chronicled his basketball life really starting in high school, you know? So, so that was, it wasn't what happened, but it was why coach, when you did this, why did you, well, why did you know, well, why didn't you do it this way? Well, why did you do it that way? How did you feel when this happened? So that was what I had to come prepared with. And that was the basic structure of the interplay between Coach Thompson and myself is that I asked the questions and got him to talk about things and to think about things that I felt were important. And some of them he didn't think it was important. Number one, his family. He he did not really in the beginning tolerate any questions about his family. And then I would sort of gently go back to him and he might be giving me a sentence. And then I heard so many times, all right, that's a that's enough about my family. What else you got? <laughs> like you just you know, so that's how he was. I may have been driving the bus, but he was in charge. So there is a lot about his family in the book. So how did you get him to talk about something that he didn't want to talk about? Patience, um, pers- gentle persistence. And and then I would interview, you know, his family didn't want to be talked about either. That was how they lived their life. That was how they lived their life. And he had he was very specific in his coaching career that I'm not going to put my family into all this stuff. Um, And so, you know, I just felt like the irony of that was this was a man who deeply, deeply, deeply loved his family because he was deeply, deeply loved by his mother and father. And so he had that same type of love and influence and commitment to his children and so it would have been weird in the book. He's very evocative and, and willing 
to talk about his mom and his dad and how much he loved them and how he owes everything to them. So to leave that out on the back end, it just felt wrong. And a lot of times in doing this book, um, you had to show the, 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 the person in this case, I had to show coach Thompson, okay, this is how it will sound if we do this, you know, like, they don't feel like it could be done, but after after he got to trust me, which was almost a year into the process, mind you, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it took a long time, and but once he did, he would I could I could show him something and say, well, what do you think about this? And he and he would consider it, and I had a good feel for what he wanted to say and how he wanted to say it, and what he wanted to leave out and what he wanted to put in, and then we got in a rhythm like that. So that's part of the gig, I think, after the second book that I've done. A lot of times there are things that these people go into the book not intending to talk about at all. And then they end up talking about it because it's really important to them. They just don't know how to say it. Yeah. Or yes, that's uh, so you say trust like you're a year into the process. Uh, so at least two questions. The first one is a simple one. How how long did you work? Uh, how long was that process? But also, how did you know you gained his trust? Like, how did he show you Did he get, that you had gained his trust? Was there something? Did he stop calling you son or boy or whatever and <laughs> address you by your name? I mean, how did you know that yeah. you had gained the trust of this, one more time, very imposing man? Go ahead. So, yes. And Coach Thompson said, and this is a direct actual quote, it's not paranoia if they're really out to get you. <laughs> and they really were out to get him for a long time. So he had a wall up and that was just sort of how he operated. And then you had to earn it. You know, you had to earn it. So um, it took us two years, start to finish. It took us two years to finish it up. Um, and so in the first or second conversation that we had, I made an I made an observation that was designed to elicit some reflection. And that was, yeah, coach, you know, I mean, well, that makes sense because you're not someone who, who really, you know, you don't trust people that easily or that quickly, huh? And he said, and I quote, I don't trust people. Shoot. I don't trust you. And he looked <laughs> me dead in my face. <laughs> uh. I had been hired. We had signed the contract you know, so on and so forth. But it was real, you know? He didn't really know me like that yet. And um, and, and so further on, uh, I felt the, the recordings of our conversations, which are, you know, I can't count how many hours they are. I felt strongly that this was something that belonged to him, both legally, but just morally and, and his family. And you know, they, I mean, they probably belong in the Library of Congress or something. That is for him and his family to provide. So I was always very clear up front, I'm going to give these things to you. So one day I said to Coach Thompson, yeah, I have these recordings. Um, uh, do you want me to save them all for the end and give them to you then? Or do you want me to give them to you as we go along? And he said, yeah, why don't you give them to me as we go along? Because, you know, you never know if I might have to get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> And it was it was a joke and a challenge, but also it was a fact. It was a fact. I was in the game. I had the rock, but I could get subbed out. I could get transferred to University of the District of Columbia at any moment. Like, and I had to earn it. And so, but that was uh, him bringing the best out of me. So that was I knew that I had his trust when he said, um, "You know, I've let a couple people read what you've done so far, and they say it sounds like me." And then he would start saying, well, you understand what I'm saying, Jesse, because, you know, you played or you know what I'm talking about. And then when he would say, you're doing a good job, boy, like the boy part was was uh, was a part of knowing that I had his trust because he's it's a it's you know, it was a graduation from Jesse this and Jesse that he said, you're doing a good job. You know, and so I was like, all right, don't mess it up, Jess. Like, good job now, but I, you know, so that was, that was how it was. So, uh, wow, that's, that's good, man. I'm just thinking about that for a moment. Just when he finally calls you boy, you go, yeah, I've made it. John Thompson treat me like he treats Allen Iverson. No, the one speak great example, because when I really knew 
is when I got motherfucker. Then, then I'm like, okay, I've, I've made it. I've made, I've made it. it. Thank you. Did you hug him? Yes. Oh, thank you, Johnson. Was he a hugger? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, no, uh, oh, no. not with me. But he was with, you know, he was with his. You know, it's different. He's older now, and it was a different type of. We were not in a physical environment. We were in an academic environment and a and a and an intellectual environment. But if you look at pictures of him. He's always in physical contact with his players. He's got his arm around him. He's got his arm around their waist, their shoulder. He's giving them hugs. He's famous for the Fred Brown hug and for the, you know, and the Allen Iverson buried his head on this man's chest at the Hall of Fame induction. But he wasn't a hugger with me. Um, but but when I got that, when I when I got that, his favorite word thrown at me, <laughs> y'all motherfuckers think blah, 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 blah. <laughs> uh, it like, is important. Okay, I, I made and it is important to note that it's his favorite word. Some people misspell it and make it two words. But no, ladies and gentlemen, America, you will learn something. It's one word. <laughs> you are correct. And he declared on more than one occasion. No, actually, he never said, it's my favorite word. He said, a, a lot of people say that that's my favorite word. And for Coach Thompson, these are very important distinctions. His grasp. So, so yeah, I wrote, I wrote the book, right? And thank you, Ben, for describing the role of the writer and channeling and shaping and focusing. But his command and attention to detail and the nuances and phrases was extraordinary. And here's my favorite example of that. There was a time when I wrote something about um, describing, uh, and it said, and I'm going to paraphrase, you know, um, I wrote, for whatever I did for the rights of Black people, I like to think that I also did as much for women. And he corrected that. And he said, he said, no, don't say it like that. Say it for whatever people say I might have done for black people's rights. So there's a big difference between saying what I did for black people's rights and what people believe I did for black people's rights. He was deflecting credit, you know, and I'm going to blow your mind with this. He did all of this, these type of every single correction on the book he did verbally. He never once wrote something down on a on a printed out piece of paper and gave it to me. Wow. What a memory. It um, was an amazing memory. Not only that, but we would read it. I would read it out loud and he would say, don't stop. Just keep going. I'll tell you when to stop. And I'd read for 10, 15 minutes. And then he'd go back and make a uh, and make a very subtle change to something I said 10 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> incredible. No, that that that's an incredible memory. Uh, all right, well, what, we're talking about the words of John Thompson. Let's get into some of these words. And as uh, I told you uh, already, um, there was a, a phase of this show where I would read quotes from this book to my guests to get their response. Okay, so uh, just, I can think of several guests who got the John Thompson quotes. And uh, I would, and then I would say, you got to read this book. You got to. I don't know if any of them read it, <laughs> but I sure said it. Uh, so uh, David Falk, I get ten percent of something. Okay, uh, all right. And this one, when I went back, uh, this one, um, I love this anecdote so much in so many ways. Uh, and this gets back to it's a chapter called the Celtics, and for a, a brief time. In his life, uh, John Thompson uh, played for the Boston Celtics. This was in the early 60s when uh, they were coached and, and pretty much run by uh, Red Auerbach, legendary uh, figure in sports, who was hugely influential in the life of John Thompson. So great deal uh, of the early sections of this book are John Thompson talking about his relationship, this loving relationship he had with Red Auerbach, uh, and Red Auerbach is a uh, about five foot eight, if that, kind of a, uh, he's a short kind of roly-poly guy. And John Thompson's this big, tall guy. John Thompson's a black man. Uh, Red Auerbach's a Jewish a white man. And they just see, when you look at them, polar opposites. But John Thompson lets you know he learned so much from Red Auerbach. And in many ways, he is a continuation of Red Auerbach. Nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, this is my favorite. Red Auerbach wasn't perfect. 
Uh, and he tells a story, and I love this story is so deep, man. Laverne Tarts, uh, who was a outstanding basketball player for the Celtics, but could not uh, quote unquote make the team because they had a quota, ladies and gentlemen. They had a quota. They couldn't have too many black people on a team because you had to fill the bench uh, with white people. And I will submit to you right now that quota is still in place in the NBA. That's the only reason Grayson Allen is still in the league. Jesse Washington is going to run away from that comment. If you saw last night's Phoenix Suns game, you know it's true. I'm like, what is that man doing on the court? And why is he starting? <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to do that, Jesse. Tell him. I'm with it. He went to Duke. Forget him. Yeah. He went to Duke. Can't even shoot. I don't understand it. Milwaukee Bucks fans are still in denial. Ben, he's really good. No, he's not. That's why you got rid of him, and that's why they'll win a championship this year. All right, here we go. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on that tangent. And yes, and yes I did. I enjoyed here it. Go. Here's a quote. <laughs> he was nodding along, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody knows Grayson Allen does not belong in the NBA. Quote, thousands of Laverne Tarts got derailed this way before even making it to high school or college teams, let alone the NBA. I've watched plenty of players on the playgrounds, people you never heard of, and said to myself, damn, he's a pro. That's one of the reasons I believe segregation was in some ways better than integration. During segregation, you knew the reason you didn't get an opportunity. After integration, they had to invent reasons to exclude you, which made us question ourselves. When it came to basketball, people started thinking, what's wrong with me that I can't make it? They questioned their own ability due to the lies that integration occurred some white people to tell. I've seen great players literally go crazy because they couldn't reconcile the fact they never make it to the pros. That's one of the negative effects of integration. Man, that just, wow. Dude, I just don't remember you, you on that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to scrape with something off the top that's minor first, but very important. You notice how he said the lies that encourage some white people to tell? He yes. always, always corrected me on that. Because I'm sure that when I wrote that, it would be the lies that encourage white people to tell. And you always go, some white people, Jesse. <laughs> so that connects to, you know, to Red Auerbach and his, his gift that most struck me in working with Coach Thompson was his ability to see the effects of the effects of the effects and their impact on a person and on, on our humanity, on our thought process, on our actions and just to see deeply and to think deeply. And that passage that you just read has layer after layer after layer of understanding of, and the things that he's showing his understanding of are, are many, race, um, you know, opportunity, self-actualization, humility, you know, like it's so deep and he just, you know, and he felt it so passionately. And sometimes I didn't get it. And, and, or sometimes I would just want to, you know, want to get him going. And so I'd be like, no, but like, and I would challenge it or say, I don't understand. Or I would say, but this or but that. And he would be like, no, man, think about it. And he would go in. And so that passage right there just really, uh, to me was one of many examples of, you know, his brilliance, man. The man was brilliant, period, point blank. And I'm still a little bit uh, in uh, in awe and, and in appreciation of the fact that I got to sit there and talk to him for, for two years and, and, and help him write his, write his book and explain his thoughts. Like when you give, bring up topics like that, that are, they're not obvious. They're not about, you know, most people would, would, um, this is what he wrote the book for, that kind of thing. Not, oh, and then the Celtics won this game and the Celtics won that game. Here's another thing, and I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. Um, I'll wrap up this answer with this. You asked me what, what the first meeting was like and how I got the job. He emphasized over and over, I don't want to write a book about basketball. And what he meant was fast break, this game, that game. He had no interest in that. You know, that was secondary to what you just read. And at periodically, every couple of weeks or couple of months, he would just remark. It's pretty amazing how little basketball we're talking, isn't it? <laughs> so that's what that that's an amazing passage. I'm glad it jumped out to you.
No, it's amazing. Uh, it, to, it to me, there's a lot going on in that uh, that paragraph. So uh, you know, then you can get in the whole thing. Well, do you think black people in America are, are worse off because of integration? Is that what you're saying? You could, you could go in that direction, uh, and uh, you could also talk about just the gaslighting of black people. Uh, by white institutions. Yeah. I mean, he lived through, yeah, he no. lived through the hollowing out of black institutions due to integration. That's the thing. Black colleges, you know, there's this big question now, how come, you know, why won't the best basketball players in the country go to a black college, you know, and be, and because that paragraph that, you know, because integration, um, you know, why, what, what happened to black banks? Um, you know, uh, all these type of things. Um, Rich uh, Rich Paul gets, you know, a lot of times um, there people think that a white agent is better just because he's white. People think that the white man's ice is colder. Um, and so white is subconsciously viewed as better a lot of times. And so integration sort of became that, you know, it wasn't white anymore, but it was mainstream. And it, you know, I went to Yale University. I didn't go to Howard, you know. And so uh, so I feel that. And he lived through that and saw it happen and it affected him extremely deeply. And that was what part of what he was vocalizing. So Coach Thompson would never say that we're better off because of we were better off under segregation. He said he was very specific with his language in some ways, <laughs> you know, in some ways. Yeah. Uh, so. Did you know the story of Laverne's Hearts before you began uh, the project with John Thompson? Or was he the one who told you, Jesse, there's a player named Laverne Tarts? He was the one. He was the one. And this was one of the, there were a few things that I could really tell in this book that really, really, he cared. So like they bothered him still. And this was, you know, uh, 60 years ago, <laughs> Six, you know, 50 years ago. Um and he was just, it hurt him so deeply. But, you know, Laverne, so Laverne was his rookie year. And he, side note, when we told the story originally, I named all the white guys on the roster who, who made the team and Laverne didn't. And Coach Thompson was like, take it out. It's not their fault. <laughs> you know, and he would say, but. That's an example of how white people, even white people who didn't discriminate, benefited from discrimination. But he said, "No, nah, you don't have to name them. You know, it was it wasn't their fault. They were part of the system and they benefited from it, but it wasn't their doing." So I didn't know who Laverne Tart was. He was devastated when Ollie Johnson got cut. He was devastated because he grew up with Ollie. They dreamed about making the league together. Ollie Johnson was a first round draft pick, but they didn't have. You know, they had they already had six black people and that was twice as many as most as most teams had. So somebody had to go and it was either Coach Thompson or Ali Johnson. So I, I, I learned about all of these these things. I mean, I, there were tons of names that he brought up that I who consider him. You know, I'm a guy who's read a few books, man. I'm a reader. <laughs> you know, I like history. I like basketball. And there was so much that I learned and had to go and look up and then act like I knew it already. The next time I sat down and talked to coach. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So now I'm going to do exhibit A of the uh, impact of a writer. And uh, this may be pound for pound my favorite line uh, in the book. Uh, and it comes in the Red Auerbach section. Or it's Celtic. It's, the chapter's called the Celtics. But it's really, in my opinion, it's mainly, it's a lot about Red Auerbach. Uh, and... Um, all right, I got to get a straight face while I read this. Um, here we go. Uh, when I was in high school and my white teammates played in segregated tournaments, it really bothered me. Over time, I came to understand how much some white people had to lose if they pushed too hard against racism. So I was able to forgive. I loved Red for moving the needle on race and standing up for black players, but he can only push so far. Red could free the slaves, but he, I'm sorry, I didn't want to laugh. Red could free the slaves, but he couldn't free them all at one time. I'm sorry, Jesse Washington. I do not believe that John Thompson just said that on his own. I believe that was a Jesse Washington line that you fed to John Thompson. And he said, oh, that's good, Jesse. Put it in there. Okay, Go so ahead. I'm glad that you brought that up. Now, 
on my mama. That is exactly, <laughs> that is John Thompson right there. Ray could free the slaves, but he couldn't free them all at one time. Now, there are other lines in there that I invented and that he approved of and that I will never tell you which ones they are. Okay. <laughs> I will never tell you. I would never disrespect this man that, that way. I will say that one time he quoted one of them to a, a, a group of people that we were in and looked at me. And gave me the look like, yeah, nice. I, I like what you did for me here and watch how I use it. Okay. But this line, this is, this is how this happened. I couldn't understand the thing with Red, to be honest with you. And I kept saying, but coach, he, Red could do whatever he want. He was Red Auerbach, you know, like, and, and he was like, no, Jesse, you don't understand and this. And, and we were going back and forth. And I was just, you know, it's part of my job it, to really, you know, to get him to explain it. And what I came to understand then and in other instances was, is that the, uh, the mark of a deeply intelligent person, one of the marks is to be able to have more than one feeling about something at one time and to understand the nuances and everything is not black and white and, and so definite and absolute. So there was stuff about red that he loved. There was stuff that he, that he, he read was a participant in systems that he despised. And he was able to, to compute emotionally all of that stuff. So this line came from, I'm just after him, after him, like, yeah, but coach this, but coach that. And then he'd be like, Jesse, I'm telling you. And then boom, he said that line, right? Could free the slaves, but he couldn't free them all at one time. That, and so, so that, those are the words of John Thompson. And then you went. That is pay dirt. <laughs> yes. He was the writer. Oh, absolutely. Yes. You know how that is when you hear something. Now, did he say it in the order that it's in this? This uh, no. This fact? no. <laughs> did I know? Like, did I know? Oh, that that's that's going to be a you know that's a punchline. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, but that's 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 my job. You know that that's my job. And and uh, and and in this case, I'm glad it worked. All right, we have a couple more samples before we move. Uh, yes, sir. Close down this interview, which could go on for hours because <laughs> I'm enjoying this so immensely. Me too, man. I love Me too. Basketball on a deep level, it's hard to explain my love for basketball, Jesse. It is hard uh, to explain and, to people who don't share it. Yeah, it's deep, man. Yeah, but I'm right it, there with it, you. I'm right there with yeah. you. That's that's why that's why I could write the book. That's why you feel the way about the book that that you do. So we'll get into this part, which I took exception to. Uh, Coach John Thompson, if you're anywhere in the universe listening, I took strong exception to this part of the book, uh, which uh, comes not f- s- at the end of the chapter of the Celtics. And he's explaining, <laughs> he's explaining, the pr- and this is where my life intersects uh, with John Thompson. He, I never met the man. He never met me, obviously. He doesn't know who I am at all. But our lives intersect. 1966, my beloved Chicago Bulls were put into existence. Yes, they were. Uh, that was a rookie year. And by and that was the year my family happened to move to Evanston, Illinois, and instantly became a Chicago Bulls fan, a diehard Chicago Bulls fan. And I've been one ever since. I'm not one of those Chicago front runners who go, hey, love the Lakers because they're on top. No, no. They, <laughs> thick and thin, John Thompson. I'm a Bulls fan, all right? John Thompson. <laughs> yep. So yeah. as an expansion team, there was something called the expansion draft where uh, teams, uh, the established teams leave players on their roster exposed. And the expansion team, in this case, my beloved Chicago Bulls, can choose a player from that roster. Well, one player left exposed by the Boston Celtics was John Thompson, which meant my beloved Chicago Bulls could draft him. And he was thinking about the possibility of coming to the Bulls. And this is what he <laughs> This this is what he wrote, ladies and gentlemen. When I thought about playing for the Bulls, I thought about quotas. How many black players would they keep? How many spots would I be competing for? Five, four, two. I didn't know the people running this team. The money wasn't great, about 8000 or 9000 per year. I was attracted to the idea of proving I could play, and my Celtic buddy Larry Siegfried told me this was my shot to make a name for myself, but he could not. But I could have not played, too. I remember how Laverne and Ollie uh, weren't there when the morning uh, came. 
the NBA lifestyle had no appeal to me. I'll move on. Our transportation and accommodations were far from luxurious. We shared hotel rooms and rode to some exhibition games in our own cars. Chicago winners made Boston look like the Bahamas. The Bulls probably be terrible. And besides, <laughs> besides all that, my wife said she wasn't going to Chicago. I decided I didn't need basketball anymore. The man when faced with the prospect of coming to Chicago and playing for the Bulls, quit. <laughs> yes. For good. In his oh mind. For God. good. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll take a – I think that Coach and his family would not mind if I gave you a peek behind the curtain. I was talking one time with Coach and his son, John, and, and we were talking about that and, you know, maybe reading it over or something. And then JT3 said, yeah, well, you know, Dad, Mama said she wasn't going to Chicago. <laughs> Not Mama. Called her Mom. Mom. And, he, and then he said, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, that was but, – but it was real. But, I mean, that, to me, that, the, the thing that really stands out to, to me about this was that, uh, you know, the NBA right now, I mean – you got guys who you and I may have never heard of who are making $15 million a year for four years. You know, you, you can be average and make a hundred mil, um, slightly above average and make a hundred mil. And so the money that these guys were getting was nothing. This is in 1965, 64, 60, yeah, 66. When, when yeah, he 66. quit. Yeah. Why am I going to do this? He quit to playing basketball to go be a social worker. Wow. <laughs> think sure. about think about that and mind you coming out of this is all american 26 and 16 his senior year at providence national championship with the with the nit you know and and ah, i'm good two years in the nba i'll go be a social worker i mean it's a it's a totally different universe than where we live now wow that is so true all right so we'll close with this uh you mentioned he's a social worker he was also a capitalist uh, and uh, you you said, at a, at a referring to Red Auerbach, uh, Red Auerbach was a participant in systems uh, he despised, meaning John Thompson. Uh, one might argue that John Thompson was a participant in systems uh, that many people, I'm going to use John Thompson words, that many people despise, uh, that some white people despise, that some black people despise. That, that some podcast hosts whose name are Ben despise. <laughs> I didn't say that. I can't say I despise Nike uh, promotional deals because I've never been offered one and forced to come face to face with how I feel. So I cannot say that, Jesse. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm just pointing out. I love where you're going. One, Keep going. I can't wait. <laughs> Keep going. There is one incredible scene in this uh, book. And if they uh, ever make it into a movie, I certainly hope this scene is concluded in a movie. And this is when my beloved uh, Jesse Lewis Jackson, Reverend Jesse Jackson, uh, who's basically from Chicago now, even though he wasn't born here, was leading or attempting to lead a Nike boycott uh, to force Nike to hire more black people uh, throughout, which is something that John Thompson believes in, uh, in principle. And there's a scene where in a hotel room somewhere, I don't know where, what town it is, New York Sonny City. Vaccaro... What's that? New York it's City. In, New York City, okay. Sonny, just imagine this, ladies and gentlemen. We took, you got Jesse Jackson in a hotel room with, and I will now list them, Sonny Vaccaro, who is uh, one of Nike's uh, chief salesmen, uh, John Thompson, Spike Lee, who made uh, Nike commercials, and uh, probably the second greatest basketball player of all time, Will Chamberlain, of course, Jesse agrees with me, is number one, Michael Jeffrey Jordan in a room, okay? <laughs> and essentially, Spike Lee, John Thompson, Michael Je Jeffrey Jordan are telling Jesse Jackson, you're going to lose, and we're going to be against you, and if you continue this, we're going to make sure you lose, but if you agree to drop, drop your protest a little bit, you can get out of this with uh, some saving face. Jesse, man, that, that scene blew my mind. Why don't you talk a little bit about it? Ooh, there's so much there. Okay, so number one, Coach Thompson was never, ever pulled nary punches about his relationship with money. <laughs> he, 
That man liked money. He liked to earn money. He had no shame in getting money and keeping money and collecting it. That was he was a capitalist, period, point blank. And he was proud of it. And so during this time that Jesse Jackson was boycotting Nike, he was in position. He was basically about to get on the board of directors of Nike, you know. And so and and along comes Jesse talking about don't buy Nikes. Now, I was a Nike consumer at this time. You know, that's where my, you know, we talked about the nickels, my the nickels plus many decimal points was going to Nike. Me <laughs> and every other young, this was before Nikes and everything was mainstream so that you would have like your grandma wearing J's out there and stuff like that. You know, um, back then it was still a thing, you know, for us. And we set trends and, you know, I remember wearing Nikes with suits and people thought I was crazy. And now that's just like standard office attire. So this was the period that we were in. We wasn't boy. I care. We love Jesse Jackson. We wasn't boycotting no Nike. Get out of here, man. Come on, man. Might be wearing Nikes. John Thompson is on the board. He's Georgetown. And go ahead with that, Jesse. Okay, I, I see you in principle, but we still wear Nikes. And Jesse and Coach Thompson knew that. You know, he knew that. But he had to balance that with his knowledge that the principle that Jesse Jackson was was advocating for was correct. And so, again, this was his ability to see numerous sides of things, to feel more than one way about the same thing at the same time. And it took me a long time to unravel it with him and get through these conversations and for me to be able to capture it. And again, my confusion would force him to explain himself and explain himself. And I gradually had to understand that he's not contradicting himself. He's explaining himself. This is a mark of his intellect. And this led to maybe my favorite line in the whole book. And I swear to you, this man said it exactly like he did, word for like like it's in the book, word for word. And and it, it was really deep because he's talking about people who are perceived as sellouts, right? So, you know, oh, this person says that they were were, you know, this person says they didn't do enough and they should have done more, right? Why did you do that? You know, the today's generation says, like, there's a thing now on young black activists about these hands, you know, whatever, whatever. And like, oh, basically they say, if I was back in the day, I, w- I would have knocked these crackers out. <laughs> you know, forget all this peaceful march and we shall overcome. I would have been knocking them out. That's easy to say in 2020, you know, shoot. But what about 1920, my dude? Like, he wasn't knocking nobody out, you know? And so... So Coach Thompson is sort of internalizing and understanding all of this. And he's talking about with this whole Nike situation, Nike should be doing more. I responded that everybody should be doing more. Now I'm reading from the books. I have it called up in front of me. You know, these kids today wouldn't be where they are if somebody hadn't made that first step happen. People look back and say, why didn't you take steps two, three, and four? They look at a step and fetch it and say, we shouldn't have let that happen. So step and fetch it was a what would now be considered an Uncle Tom who put on, you know, a caricature face paint and stuff and, and danced and shuffled for white entertainment. So Coach Thompson brought his name up and then he said, and I quote, step and fetch it, stepped and fetched it. So you young people don't have to step and fetch right now. <laughs> Yo, you gotta like, you gotta rewind that. But he didn't, he didn't say it all slow and everything so I could catch, I had to go back and listen to it on the tape. Step and fetch it, stepped and fetched it. So you young people don't have to step and fetch right now. And I was like, did I, like, what? I had to go back and listen to it and then think about it. So that was, and that's, that was his approach to Nike in a nutshell. Hey man, Phil's doing everything he can. I'm making money. Um, I'm about to get on the board. Jesse don't really know that. And I'm gonna take it one step further and then I'm gonna wrap it up. Um, so this was a question. There was a few questions that I was afraid to ask Coach Thompson because they could be perceived as insulting. And I always had to get my gumption up and ask him. And this is one of them. I'm thinking the whole time. So, yo, did you get on the board because Jesse raised the stink? <laughs> is that what got you on the board? You know what I'm saying? And when I finally got up the nerve to ask him, he said, uh, and I'm going over here, you know, he said, oh, well, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. But if, if Jesse helped me, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm not apologetic about it. 
yeah, good looking out. You know, you people made sacrifices to open the door. And once the door is open, I could I could handle the rest, you know. But so he he leaned into that situation, which I found super fascinating. And he loved Jesse. He said so many, so many complimentary things. I lied. This is the, the ending of that story. He said that he saw Jesse at a game years later and Jesse came over and said to him, you know what I admire about you, John Thompson? You stood up when you had something to lose. You know, you, you stood up when you had something to lose. And if that if that could probably sum up, you know, a good bit of Coach Thompson and why he was so special, he, you know. And, and if you think about it, everyone asks now, why aren't there are the black coaches in college basketball or college sports who are standing up and speaking out against injustice? They got too much to lose. They're scared of their losing their job, their money, their position. You know, Coach Thompson stood up when he had something to lose. To me, that's what really one of the things that I'm going to remember about him. All right. Fair enough. And that's uh, on page 285. If you have the book at home, uh, and if you don't have the book at home, go out and buy the book. Okay. It's a great book. If you're a sports fan or if you're not just a sports fan or check it out from the library, you know, you could do that too. Uh, on that same page, we'll close with this, something that uh, I, I had a big smile when I read it. Uh, and shout out Sam Greenlee, one of uh, the great um, forgotten writers from Chicago, uh, Spook Who Sat By The Door, which I just happened to reread, uh, Jesse, about a, a month ago. Still genius. New edition. Yeah. And um, uh, so here's what uh, Thompson, John Thompson said. Uh, quote, Jesse and I, meaning Jesse, not Jesse Washington, Jesse Jackson. Jesse and I both played the long game with Nike. Like that book where the black guy infiltrated the CIA, I was, quote, the spook who sat by the door. I were going to vehemently disagree with you, uh, or uh, John Thompson, on that point. Uh, you were not the spook who sat by the door. You were active uh, with Nike. Uh, you put pressure on Nike. You let Phil Knight know where your position was. Uh, and, uh, you know, you let the world know the, the genius of Sam Greenlee's character and the whole, uh, metaphor that he weaves so brilliantly in that book is that, uh, a black person in a white institution can just disappear, uh, and no one will even know that he's here. So it's like, it's a play on words. It's a brilliant concept. The whole book is about the parable of being a black man in a white world, and I think it speaks, it's a metaphor, uh, Jesse, that I think speaks beyond just that particular book. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I just had a big smile. I was like, Sam Greenlee made it to John Thompson's book. Yes, <laughs> John indeed. Thompson remembered the spook who sat by the, bo- the door. Go he ahead, absolutely Jesse. remembered. He brought that up. You know, he brought, he said, yeah, what's that book, Jesse? I, and he would make jokes. Yeah, you know, you one of them Ivy League dudes. Uh, what's that book? <laughs> what's, what's that book yeah. where the guy, the black guy was in the CIA? And I, I, I'm glad that I knew it. And, um, you know, it was just uh, one of a kind. John Thompson uh, will never see another person like him due to the times that we live in and the money and what people are willing to risk or not. Um, and so his bravery and his intellect and his courage, um, I'm very thankful that he chose me to assist him in, in putting his thoughts in this book. Mm-hmm. And I believe that this book will, is, a uh, um, my man, Dr. Leonard Moore down at university of Texas, when he read it, he said, Jesse, this is the historical document. So to be able to contribute to that is very gratifying for me. Thanks coach. All right. Very good. And also probably help to get that gig with Rich Paul. I've not read that book yet. Okay. <laughs> so I cannot, uh, it did, have a it show, did help. But- it did help. And when Rich's book dropped, I sent the co- the Thompson family a message and said, hey, man, I'm, I'm here because of y'all. So uh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I will read the book and bring you back. We'll have a conversation about the Rich Paul book. Uh, I have not read it yet. So can't have the conversation, uh, Jesse, until I've read the book. How about that as a procedure? Imagine that. Uh, Some people still have integrity in this world. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Uh, all right, uh, Jesse, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a blast talking to you and, uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Ben, thank you. And I, I rarely speak for coach Thompson, but I'm very confident that he would really appreciate you engaging with his book and his story the way you did. So 
thank you for um, really getting the message and helping to carry it forth. I appreciate it. And I believe that Coach Thompson would too. All right. That makes me feel pretty good. That is Jesse Washington. The name of the book is I Came as a Shadow, an autobiography, John Thompson with Jesse Washington. I think uh, the print should be a little bigger. And John Thompson would would say if he were around, you if you think that you write your own book <laughs> or you whatever. Anyway, thank you very much, uh, Jesse Washington. Great book. Check it out in the library, folks. If you, you're too broke, there's always a library. All right. You can always get the book from the library. Too broke to buy. Go to the library. That's Jesse Washington. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 